from Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. As the world struggles with what's real and what's not, our frame of reference is becoming harder and harder to shape. Deep fakes. It's a technique for human image synthesis based on artificial intelligence. It's used to combine and superimpose existing images and videos onto source images or videos by using a simple technique. We're entering an era in which our enemies can make it look like anyone is saying anything at any point in time. That voice sounded like former President Barack Obama, and the video looked like him as well. But neither was true. While it seems funny, sometimes it can have serious implications for the U.S. national security community. Today, when image or pixel or video manipulation is becoming more and more available, I have to, we have to, reset confidence levels. That was former director of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, Robert Cardillo. We'll examine, in depth, deep fakes and the problems they can cause. Coming up on this edition of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. There's a large contingent of AI applications either coming or already out there that you can use to change your own appearance in a video or a picture. Here's a few of them. FaceApp, another called Defect. There's Aging Booth. Have They Faked Me as Another, and one called UCAM Makeup. They are, according to the designers, intended to be fun. But there's a very serious side to those applications and using them. If you think about it, you are using an application that belongs to a company on a device that's connected to the internet that essentially is in the cloud. That means not only are you in that space, but so are billions of other people, some of whom who don't have your best interest in mind. This program is going to examine the threats and risks that lay out there. But before we get there, I wanted to see what the average person thought about some of these applications. So I went out on the streets here in Washington to talk to some people. My name's David. David, so you've heard about this app called FaceApp, right? What do you think about it? Um, well, I think it's interesting to see, but um, I... It's, it's not, didn't change my life in any way when I, I used it. Yeah? Yeah. So do you think there are any dangers or risk for using that? Um, well, I, I think the fact that um, the company has your um, face isn't a massive problem. But um, when I heard that um, it was owned by a Russian data company, I did delete the app. <laughs> but I wasn't massively afraid. Okay. And what's your name, sir? Uh, ben. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, I don't use it. I used it once, and it, I didn't really... It's not that fun. Right. So, do you think there are any concerns with using that kind of thing? 
Uh, no, not really, because I don't think you put any details in it. You just, all they have is a photo of your face, so, like, it doesn't matter too much. So what would your advice be to uh, other people now? Um, well, I would, I would say be careful if you don't want your face out there, but um, it doesn't, I don't think it poses any immediate danger or any massive danger to one. And you, what do you think? If you're scared about it, just delete the app. But if you don't care, then just keep using the app. Those two young men were friends who obviously have seen and used the app and have differing opinions about the value of the app and risks of AI. One says it could be a problem. Another says it's not so much. Now, here's a young lady who had some very different concrete views about it. My name is Yasmin. Okay, so what do you think about the face app? Um, I think that it's an easy way for people to to identify people's you need, when when someone uses it, they can they can automatically identify how they look like. Mm -hmm. So like people governments can use them for their advantage, I guess. So you know it's supposed to be just an app yeah. to change your looks, but you, you know. think there's more to it. Yeah, I think there's more to it. And what's your advice to people about using it? I think that they shouldn't be so naive to giving in their faces like that. I don't know. <laughs> One more question. Sure. Do you think that this whole face app thing is intentional? Or is it just something that a company just decided, oh, hey, this would be fun? I think it started out as this would be fun. And then when they found out that literally everyone in the world is using it, Maybe they thought there's more to it. So I think it like, gradually escalated. It wasn't, the, the first intention wasn't to start it like that, I guess. Gotcha. Now this next conversation was with David and Akash. And this particular conversation pointed out just how deeply suspicious a lot of people are about these kinds of apps but also the U.S. government. And it also shows a certain level of cynicism when it comes to any kind of social media or internet activity. I don't, I don't know too much about it, but I know people can like change their features, hairstyles, and everything like that. So I guess it could be useful in some ways. Do you think there are any concerns about it? Um, I've, read, <laughs> I've read that, like, you know, I guess they, they sell information or something like that, but... I also think that uh, if you're using like social media and everything, then your 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 information is usually accessible anyway. It's out there anyway. Yeah. Nothing's free. Right, 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 right. Yeah, I have the same answer, right? And Play Store and the Apple Store, right? So they are they are basically allowing them to have those kind of apps. They are, those are the big companies. They should make sure they have the kind of, kind of security they are looking for and everything. Instead of the government jumping into it and giving these answers, it's not uh, having the right security. But yeah, I think U.S. companies are more dangerous comp uh, for the data thing, right? Considering Facebook and everything, yeah, they yeah. they are selling our data. Whatever we do, everyone is tracking. Even the Google Maps, yeah. where so, where we go, yeah, they, they track exactly us. So anyway. it's not just one app. It's just from Russia made this app. Right, 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 right. So that's why they have more concerns about it. That's very interesting you point that out. What would your advice be then to people who are using the app or, have, or thinking about using it? Yeah, I think we should just use whatever is more useful to us in our day-to-day -day life instead of using this kind of app. That's, that's how... And if we are in the technology, right, 
there is no way to consider ourselves secure. People will track us down, whatever we do. So it's better to cut off from the social media or from all those things, and then you can say you are in a safer world. What do you think? To be most secure, you have to, I guess, stop using technology. If you're going to use technology, then you, you kind of have to know that yeah, there's, it's possible that some information about yourself can can be be out there. Basically, your digital footprint. Gotcha. So, try to put as much, as least amount of, I guess, personal things out there as possible. But you kind of have to understand that mm-hmm. it'll 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 it, it could get out there anyway. anyway. If you're going to use technology. Yeah. All of the people that we've spoken to so far have been younger people, but any kind of impromptu survey like this about some kind of social media or application that young people are using would be incomplete if we didn't get an adult or a parent-type figure in on the conversation. And so this woman, who chose not to identify herself, had some very serious thoughts about the situation. I don't think it's worth the risk. I think if lawmakers are raising concerns about it, then the public should probably listen to that. Most people probably don't think that um, it's a big deal, but you know, I don't want pictures of my children, for example, um, used without my knowledge. And what's your advice to people who are considering using it or are using it? I think it's really difficult to know um, what you're really getting into when you sign up for these kind of apps. So a lot of people like yourself are good at digesting what we should know about this. So it's important to read um, what is being written about these kinds of apps so that people can make informed decisions. So here's what I've learned in my research. If you use an application like a face app or a UCAM makeup, there's your image in that application. What the company does with it is up to the company because basically you give them the right in perpetuity, meaning forever, to do whatever they want to do with the image. The idea is hopefully they won't do anything nefarious with it. But the problem is there are those out there that know about the application and know about the capabilities of the application who want to do something nefarious with it. So your image could be used to essentially put you in a place that you weren't. It could be used, if it's a video, to have you saying or doing something that you didn't say or do. And what's really concerning is that someone else could essentially take possession of your image, essentially claiming your identity. And if you're like me, you're going to think a little bit further into the possibility of a diabolical act. Somebody might want to target you. They might get a hold of your device. And if you have facial recognition on your device, then there you go. This image of you possibly could be used to access your devices. The bottom line on it is, it's very risky. And that's just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the problems that this kind of technology, artificial intelligence, can cause for anyone. But take it to a higher level and look at governments, look at security, look at intelligence operations. That's where the problem really gets hairy. And on this program, we have Robert Cardillo, the former director of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, to give us some idea of just how deeply concerned the intelligence community is, or at least should be, about this problem. My fundamental concern is based upon the proposition that the, the currency of 
an intelligence professional is credibility. That's how you get invited into important decision-making discussions. And that's how you get invited back, um, is built upon that credibility. So therefore, my concern with these kinds of applications is it puts at risk that credibility. And if, if an audience or a person isn't sure or isn't convinced about the source material upon which you're making an assessment or an assertion, it's going to make that conversation much more difficult. And so in that, all of these applications start to shake that foundation of confidence. It gives me great concern for the, uh, for the profession. All right, so let's take a quick step back and get some more fundamental information from you about your thoughts regarding deep fakes. Give me your understanding of what deep fakes are and what they essentially achieve. Uh, Deepfake is a is a online open source uh, software application that is available um, worldwide, and it allows the user, through some very uh, simple and straightforward steps, to manipulate uh, still or more importantly video imagery by uh, swapping uh, faces or people to uh, simulate and emulate. Uh, behavior which didn't exist uh, until the person put the uh, the new face into the application. In short, it just makes it quite easy to manipulate um, any viewer uh, by uh, changing uh, the personality within the original video. And looking at some of the applications that are out there that people seem to be embracing with a great deal of enthusiasm, explain what the risk is for the person that, say, uses this face app uh, type of um, application. What are some of the risks that they run aside from, you know, the obvious uh, manipulation or changing the face? What are some of the uh, what are some of the what are some of the risks they run? Yeah, I think I think face app brings in a different risk. Um, uh, many of us uh, who are looking for convenience and security are going to facial recognition for uh, a security mechanism. You may open your your smartphone or your tablet with such an application. Contributing your face to entities like FaceApp potentially gives uh, somebody with malintent the opportunity to use your face in order to uh, to trick uh, such such an application to open uh, when you don't want it to. So in short, it's a, it's a bit like giving your fingerprint away. Yeah, it's very important. Um, so back to the uh, intelligence community. How great of a risk? How great of a problem is this for the IC? Now you haven't been out officially that long, just a few months. But you were talking about this uh, before you left. So I'm interested in getting from you some uh, idea or, or at least concept of uh, just how much the intelligence community is thinking about this as a risk, the uh, the idea of deepfakes. Back to that. Yeah, indeed. it's um, it, You're right. It's not a new problem. Um, I recall uh, in the summer of 2014, when I was uh, responsible for the president's daily brief, 
uh, we had to, it was our job to inform the president and senior leadership team as much as we knew about the downing of the Malaysian airliner over eastern Ukraine. And while we had a very solid intelligence-based story then, which, which then was corroborated by the Dutch Safety Board some two years later, that is to say a, uh, a Russian surface-to-air missile uh, used by the Russian separatists in eastern Ukraine brought down that civilian airliner. At the time, uh, Russia or Russia-controlled entities were feeding into that debate and discussion uh, fake imagery. That is to say they uh, would uh, put an image out for public consumption that made it appear that uh, there was a Ukrainian jet fighter involved in the shootdown. Again, it was relatively easy to identify the fake, but it was less easy, more difficult to bring the discussion and the debate back on target and on focus. So my point is, is that the, the user of a deep fake or the implementer of a deep fake has a great advantage because all they really seek is not to win in court or ultimately prove to be correct, but to sow doubt and confusion amidst decision making. And that's what I worry about, is that, that when time is of the essence, the insertion of these manipulated images or videos will confuse and will delay action. And that often can be the deciding factor in, in a confrontation. For years, I and others in the media and you and others, um, your colleagues in the intelligence community have tried to get people to pay attention to problems like this, but it's very difficult to get them to see uh, the problem because they're distracted. And a part of what this whole deep fake uh, enterprise is all about is to sow more distraction. So the question I would ask then is how do you get people? How do you bring people when you find yourself in that situation? How do you bring them back to the table, back to the discussion, back to the present moment? Well, I think it's two things. One, I think it's incumbent upon intelligence professionals to add this to their duties. But this being um, uh, ensuring assuring their audience that the source material, we're talking about imagery now, has been protected, uh, that we do understand the pedigree of the pixels, they've been controlled to alleviate the concern about that which we're, we're using to make the case. So that's the positive aspect of it. We just have to be better at securing our data and ensuring that, that the provenance uh, therein. On the other side, you're right. Um, uh, we live in a busy world, and it is difficult to get get people's attention. I guess my point would be, if you still believe, or or maybe you hark back to those days when we used to say, "Seeing is believing," and a picture is worth a thousand words. In order for that to be true, all of us have to be attuned to what is now a threat in this digital world, that seeing may not be believing. And so you, as a consumer of an image or a video, need to do your own due diligence, whether it's for personal, social, financial, or security reasons, and demand of the, the provider or the purveyor of the image that they uh, show that uh, provenance and that surety that the, the images 
the image has not been manipulated and the pixels have been protected. So, I, I, again, I think the professionals need to do a better job, and I think the consumer needs to do a better job to demand that that integrity. Hmm. Shifting gears slightly, um, can you assess for us, and you kind of already did this uh, in talking about the 2014 incident, but uh, five years later, assess how adversaries can use this uh, technology and this idea of deep fakes and, and it along with the capabilities of AI against the U.S. government? Well, sure. And I guess even though we're talking about a new capability and, you know, in our highly connected uh, world, the behavior behind this capability is not new. Right? Humans have been seeking to deceive other humans for myriad reasons for as long as we've existed. Um, one has always attempted to um, inhibit an adversary or an opponent's insight in order to create an advantage um, uh, that's been done uh, forever. I guess the reason why I think that this technology at this time is worth uh, a broader discussion and education is because of, one, the relative ease. Um, it, it, is, it is not difficult to, to uh, infuse uh, manipulated images or videos into a conversation or a debate. And two, um, the fact that we're so hyper-connected now the ripple is much faster. And let's face it, we've we've seen examples in social media where even even something that has become demonstrably false over time, and that time could just be minutes, the effect uh, was already achieved, and that was through delay. So an adversary uh, taking on a U.S. security operation or a diplomatic engagement if their objective was delay and confusion, or if their objective was to sow doubt, uh, say in an ally's populace about the merits of a U.S. position, uh, one would, I'll say simply, one would infuse into the into that conversation uh, the manipulated image, and as soon as the crowd or the experts caught up to that, you could be deploying another one, and so the. As I said earlier, the, the advantage goes to the, the perturbator of the system, not to the defender, which makes our job all the harder. Then what do you suggest the U.S. government do about this situation? Uh, and I'm going to go back in a minute to ask you about the, the leading perturbators, as you uh, label them, uh, who they are. But I want to first get your, get your thoughts on what should the U.S. intelligence community do about the threat? I think you've talked a little bit already about um, asking more questions and, uh, you know, what to do regarding images, but from a 30,000-foot view. What should the intelligence community do? Yeah, uh, I mean, I'll speak to the intel community. I think it's actually larger. I mean, this goes to the, you know, the transparency of our society, the information flow, the confidence that you have when you hear from a government official, et cetera. So I do think it's bigger. And so the first thing is, I think, education and and frankly, uh, you're covering this topic as part of that education. I think, I think we need to air um, and discuss and debate uh, proper uses and improper uses. And so that's just a general education campaign. Two uh, is also part of uh, of what has become a new normal is that you know we just have to be better at what I call the digital hygiene. 
Uh, all ones and zeros deserve protection, whether they end up as a pixel within an image or they end up as a, as a number within a, a bank account. And we just need to get better at that. Um, and uh, in, this, in this world, I have uh, coined the term geospatial assurance to assure those that, that are consuming the image or the video have the confidence of its, of its history, of its pedigree. And so, again, there's, there are ways through technology that you can um, do a better job of, of, of protecting those pixels and ensuring their integrity. And then lastly, I, I, you know, this is, this is hard uh, for the government, almost by design, uh, but we must be more agile. We must be quicker. We must uh, be able to uh, deliver um, information in ways that can be consumable, that can compete with, with adversaries that are going to infuse. Uh, as I said, that's something that uh, doesn't always come naturally, but I think we, uh, we just need to focus on it. All right, um, back to the the people that are actually putting this, uh, making this more of a problem for the U.S. intelligence community and uh, any other uh, intelligence community in any other country around the world and any other government. But as far as the U.S. goes, um, who are the main main actors they should be concerned about, uh, either country or other type of actor? Well, I gave you know the the one example uh, from 2014 uh, originated uh, uh, from Russia, or at least Russian-controlled entities. Um, Iran has a history of um, manipulating images in support of um, their threat. That is to say, when they when they all do an exercise um, and you know want it covered in the press to to amplify. Uh, the strength or an achievement they've made, uh, they have done, uh, um, you know, made multiple copies of the same missile launch, for example, to make it look like a larger salvo has been launched. Um, and then finally, uh, 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 North Korea has done the same along those exercise lines. Um, I, I'll, I'll tell you, I'm less concerned with those kinds of manipulation because I mean, they are aimed at the public, but they really are pretty easy to walk back, and they're not deployed in the midst of a crisis. Uh, the ones that worry me more are the ones at which we, you know, events move uh, quickly, uh, tensions raise, and uh, when we're trying to determine um, attribution or we're trying to determine determine you know who was responsible for what action in what order that then becomes much more vulnerable to the image manipulation which leads to the confusion which delays the decision and in my mind that inhibits you know our our, our country's freedom of action um, but those are three countries in which we've we've seen them uh, pretty active in this space tell me from your perspective now that you've been out of government, um, at least from a formal role in government, for the first time in decades, um, how do you view the world in which all of this is taking place um, compared to the world you, as you saw it when you went in? How much of a change has taken place? Um, I, I don't know that it's changed greatly from my time in government till left. What has changed uh, is my view of 
the commercial potential. I was a I was a strong advocate for creating new partnerships uh, between the government, industry, um, government, uh, academia, uh, to do two things. One, to do a better job of explaining what we do uh, within you know democratic uh, society that respects um, uh, privacy as well as uh, uh, our obligation to provide security. But on the now that I have had more time to interact with both entities, um, nonprofits and for-profit institutions, uh, the the potential uh, for increased you know cooperation and mutual benefit is greater than I had thought. Uh, that is to say, the capacity, the innovation, the agility of industry, um, and these uh, uh, think tanks are are even better than than I had known. And so, whereas I was formerly in a position of trying to uh, create partnerships from the inside, um, in many ways, I'm trying to create the same outcome. I'm just doing it from a different position now, creating those partnerships from the outside. You know, you see people all the time walking around. They don't even look up when they cross the street with uh, devices. And there are these... There are these very possibly harmful situations going on with these devices. So I'm, I'm wondering if any of that impacts you or have you been able to absorb all of that during all these years where you were so incredibly busy doing the other work you were doing? Um, you're, you're saying to me that you, this, you've, you've seen all this um, and it, it doesn't really uh, move you at all what you're, what, what's going on now because you've seen it all as it as it evolved, is that what I'm hearing you saying? Um, I don't think so. Um, I, I guess to your point about you know what's the you know the state of our you know um, security uh, position, uh, how are we properly postured um, as a as a society as a country for potential perturbations in that in that security. Right? No, I think it. I think you are right. I think I think there is a somewhat of a complacency that may not be fully earned, and that may pose some risk that if we do move from you know the relative calm um, pre-crisis um, uh, situation that we're in now, that that lack of focus um, could inhibit action. Because at the end of the day, um, one needs, um, you know, society and citizens behind government actions. And to the extent that they're not um, completely, well, completely or fully informed, um, it could inhibit that action. So that does worry me a bit. As we close out here, I'm wondering, um, the, the biggest concern you have about this deep fake trajectory as it relates to the general population, not just security professionals. The biggest concern you have uh, about this tomorrow, next year, three years, five years. It's pretty fundamental. That is to say, my, my biggest concern is that it will inhibit, if not prohibit, our ability to agree on what's true. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't say what's right, just just having a shared awareness of factual reality. And we already live in a time in which 
assertions are made and kind of a polarizing debate occurs and in, in, in our in various camp moves to their corners what i worry about this technology it's going to amplify mm -hmm. that polarization and give us less common ground on which to have a, a healthy debate doesn't mean we have to agree but but at least stand on common ground while we have it and and i think a democratic society needs that that common ground. And so to the extent that this technology puts that uh, at risk, or at least on shakier ground, gives me great pause. All right, sir. Thank you very much. And let's stay in touch. It's, it's a deal. Okay. Great talking with you. Okay, take care. That was Robert Cardillo. He's the head of the Cardillo Group. And until recently, he was the head of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. On this program, we talked about deep fakes. What did we learn? We learned that artificial intelligence and ingenuity are creating a serious problem for those of us seeking to protect our own image and identity. And as time passes, we're going to have to become more judicious about what we do and more importantly, what we don't do with social media and certain applications. Coming up in our next episode, We've been talking a lot about cyber attacks, and the U.S. is on the front line of all of that. But the cyber war machine, how these attacks take place and how to defend against them is something everybody around the world is talking about. We see offensive capability as a normal part of defensive strategy. And more and more countries are gearing up to develop and use cyber weapons. And Tanosep, head of the Estonian Ministry of Defense's cyber programs, says having a defensive program with no offensive capability is useless. So what do those weapons look like? Now imagine a, a military parade. You have a podium with officers and generals <clears throat> all saluting the troops. But instead of troops, you have laptops on tracks. The future of cyber warfare, coming up in our next episode. Thank you for listening as always. Appreciate the opportunity to engage with you. If you have any questions or comments about the program, send me an email at jgreen at wtop.com. That's whiskey tango oscarpapa.com. Also, follow us on Twitter at TUSA Podcast. That's at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. At TUSA Podcast. And also, Sign up for our newsletter. It's called Inside the Skiff. It's all of the national and international security news that you won't see or hear about anywhere else. That's Inside the Skiff at WTOP.com slash alerts. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Calling all true crime fans. The Court Junkie Podcast is now on Podcast One. Imagine being wrongfully convicted for a crime you didn't commit or a killer is on the loose, even though there's enough evidence for an arrest. The Court Junkie podcast shines a light on the injustices of the judicial system with deep dives into court documents and interviews those closest to the case. Download new episodes of Court Junkie podcast on Apple Podcast and Podcast One. Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.